ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're about to hear a story of espionage, bomb plots, Swiss bank accounts, stolen passports, an oil-rich dictator and the rogue Irish priest who helped mastermind it all. Hello there, Andrew West with the Religion and Ethics Report right here on ABC Listen and RN. Now, to those who encountered him without asking too many questions, Father Patrick Ryan was a pretty typical village priest in Ireland. But he lived a secret, a very secret life, because for almost 20 years, Ryan was a spy for the Irish Republican Army. Not only that, he became the point man in the IRA's relationship with Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, and his espionage helped the IRA in some of its most blood-soaked plots. BBC journalist Jennifer O'Leary reveals this story in her new book, The Padre, the true story of the Irish priest who armed the IRA with Gaddafi's money. Not a whole lot was known about Father Patrick Ryan at the time when he was careering, if you like, around Europe and Libya on behalf of the IRA. His activity was only known to an elite few within the Irish Republican Army. And then in terms of his other part of his life, you know, his being a priest, a missionary priest, to all intents and purposes, he had disappeared as such from the church in the early 1970s. Certainly, his activities would have been known to some within the intelligence services in Britain and in Europe, but largely a character that lived under the radar, Andrew. How did you get him to talk, Jennifer, after all these years? It wasn't easy. I'm an investigative journalist for the BBC in Northern Ireland, and I meet all manners of people. And I was meeting with a source one time and they passed a remark about there being this, as they described it, this character who had a story to tell about the IRA and his name was Ryan. I wrote down the name in the corner of a notebook and I got busy with other stories and other deadlines. And it wasn't until I would say the guts of two years later, I knocked on the door of a stranger That led to an introduction to Patrick Ryan. And it was only through a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations, nothing at all to do with the IRA or what he had done for the IRA. It was then that he began to open up and agree to be interviewed. It is gripping. I mean, this is a true life espionage story. The other thing to point out is, though, Patrick Ryan never ceased to be a priest. He may have ceased to wear his clerical collar, but this is something that was always in his life, even when he was engaged in this espionage. By the way, he's got a long rap sheet. What are some of the, well, I'm reluctant to call them highlights, but what are the major points of that rap sheet? Well, here is a person who was sitting down with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya to negotiate money and the supply of arms from the Libyan regime to the IRA. Now, many of your listeners will be aware that in the 1970s, Muammar Gaddafi very much saw the IRA as so-called comrades in arms fighting British imperialism. 
Patrick Ryan sat down with Gaddafi and was the IRA's link man with the Libyan regime. But crucially, Andrew, he spotted an opportunity as he saw it for the re-engineering of a timer in Switzerland that went on to be used in scores of IRA bomb attacks. So this man, Patrick Ryan, a Catholic priest who was working full-time on behalf of the IRA. He wasn't out planting bombs in the dead of night, putting them under cars or in ditches or on the sides of the roads, but his supply of a particular component transformed the IRA's capacity to re-carnage, if you like. Let's go back to his childhood in Tipperary. Is he raised in a particularly nationalist home? Absolutely. And Andrew, that is at the very kind of core of his story. He's born in 1930, grows up in a small farm on a hillside in County Tipperary, is the second eldest son. So he was never going to inherit the farm. And crucially, his mother, Mary Ann, was somebody who told her six children quite often and with pride what she had done in the 1920s as a teenager during Ireland's War of Independence. She instilled this deep nationalism within Mm. her children. And her second eldest son, Patrick, took up the mantle more than the others in the family. Yeah, the reason I'm I'm fascinated by this, Jennifer, is he does become a priest, but is it possible that part of his decision to become a priest is more about status in Ireland than about piety, than about religiosity? Yes. I mean, as he said it himself to me, the markers of status within rural Ireland at that time was a bull in the field, a pump in the yard, and a priest in the family. Mm. And in those days, tens of thousands of young men and women went to join religious orders. Patrick Ryan was only 14 years of age when he entered the junior seminary in Thurlis in County Tipperary. He was ordained in 1954. And because there was this surplus of nuns and priests, he was dispatched to the missions to extend Ireland's so-called spiritual empire. And he was dispatched to East Africa to work as a missionary priest, where he did for over a decade. Uh, Yeah, and became quite the uh, action man too, (laughs) Um, which I I wonder at the time whether may have whetted his appetite for his uh, future adventures. Uh, What was he doing in East Africa? It is incredible because he was there and he told me that he preferred to kind of get stuck in than to stand around with a catechism, as he described it, in his hand all day. So he's rolling up his sleeves, he's drilling for water, he's helping to build clinics. He even learns how to fly a plane during his first trip back to Ireland on respite so that when he returns to East Africa, he can fly between the different clinics to deliver medicine. That says so much about his dedication to whatever he is focused on. Mm. His intention was to stay in East Africa. He left again because of his character. He didn't get on with the bishop, in effect, who had been sent out to supervise the likes of Patrick Ryan. 
So he spent time in London in a parish for the Palatine Order for a number of years. But it is kind of an indication of who he is on the inside. He is ruthless and he is loath to take orders. Yeah, well, you say he didn't get on with the bishop, but what did intrigue me in this book, Jennifer, is that when he's in Tanzania, and yes, he's witnessing, you know, the effects of colonialism, British colonialism, he does seem to get on rather well with some of the British uh, soldiers who were stationed there. Does he have a grievance against the British? Because it doesn't seem to come out here in the heart of the British colonial world. Exactly. He doesn't bear any animosity towards the British soldiers who had travelled down to Tanzania from Kenya at that time in the, in the late 1950s. But think of it this way, Andrew. At that time, he was focused on his role as a missionary priest and he had no reason to bear any anti-English or anti-British grudge. It's only when he is back in Ireland in 1969 when what became known as the Troubles begins to break out. That is what brings to the surface the deep militant nationalism that his mother instilled in him all those years previously. Uh, this is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We are speaking with Jennifer O'Leary about her new book, The Padre, the true story of the Irish priest who armed the IRA with Gaddafi's money. Well, let's go to that because, as you said, it's 1969. The Irish troubles break out. They begin, I think, with what is a peaceful demonstration that becomes violent I get the impression that, in a way, Father Patrick Ryan, back from England, where he has been working as a curate, not very exciting work, he's back in England, in Ireland, but he almost falls into a role with the IRA. I mean, what triggers his decision to basically knock on the door in his clerical collar and say, how can I help? In August of 1969, he is travelling around Ireland. He is collecting, it's his job, for the Palatine Order to collect the money in the mission boxes. And it's during that time when reports begin to emerge of, of the violence that's breaking out in Northern Ireland. And as he described it, something deep had been unleashed and it couldn't be put back in a box. Patrick Ryan, instead of handing the money back to his superiors in Tipperary, begins to give it over to people who he knows can get it to Irish Republicans across the border. But really, Andrew, that's pittance compared to what he would do a short few years later. Yeah, yeah no, go on. It's, it's, <laughs> it's his contacts. Being a priest in Ireland at that time, nobody would question what he was doing. He could meet all manners of people. And Patrick Ryan is a very charismatic person. He is well used to sussing people out, deciding how can that person be of use to me? So he made himself available to Republicans and they were all too willing to take on this person. Yeah. The IRA had been raising money and getting, I think, weapons from the United States, but there was a disastrous uh, moment when a plane, I think, loses altitude and crashes and, and that source of arms dries up. So why Libya? 
and why Patrick Ryan, Father Patrick Ryan, is the go-between for the IRA. Libya had been taken over, if you like, uh, by you know a military coup led by Muammar Gaddafi. He had a massive surplus of millions and millions of oil dollars from the black gold, if you like, under the soil in his country. And he wasn't only financing terrorist groups like the IRA, he was also giving money to other terrorist groups across Europe. So contact is made. An intermediary in Ireland makes it known that the Libyans are willing to help the Irish Republican cause. There is one shipment of arms on a boat called the Claudia. Now, the detail is in the book because it's a fantastic spy story in itself. You bet. (laughs) Patrick Ryan Ryan is in Tripoli at that time in 1972. And the Claudia shipment turns out to be a debacle. And it's already been decided by a senior Republican in Belfast that Patrick Ryan is to be dispatched to Libya to become the link man with Gaddafi. Now, that in itself, Andrew, was a very cunning decision because think of it this way. Patrick Ryan, he speaks five languages. He's highly educated. But crucially, he has no family. He has no wife and children to be sentimental for. He can focus on his role within the IRA and he agrees to take up that role on two conditions, one being that he won't formally join the organisation and the second one being that if he discovers that any of the money or material that he is managing to obtain for the IRA is being misused, he will walk away from the organisation. So a crafty move by him not to formally join because that puts him outside their rules as such. When you say, Jennifer, that he said that, you know, he'd walk away from the operation if any of the money that he raised for the IRA was misused, what did he know of how the money was being used? I mean, well, he must have been conscious of th- that its, its purpose was not peaceful. Absolutely. I mean, he he was in no doubt what the IRA was using the money for was to maintain an army that was involved in attacks against targets in Northern Ireland and outside Northern Ireland, primarily targets involving soldiers and policemen. But obviously, many hundreds of civilians were also killed as a result of IRA attacks. So Patrick Ryan knew full well what he was involved in and what the money that he was managing to send back via the Swiss bank accounts and a network of sleepers and contacts that he had set up to ferry the money back to Ireland, what the money was being used for. He knew exactly what it was being used for and he agreed Mm. with the purpose You mentioned that story about the arms shipment on the ship, the Claudia. The arms shipment didn't work out, but but something rather spectacular did work out that involved literally Father Patrick Ryan, literally laundering money. What happened? Just an incredible story. The Irish Navy are closing in on the Claudia because the ship is being tracked but a minute that it left Tripoli, it was being tracked through the Mediterranean 
back to Ireland by British intelligence, who then notified the Irish authorities what was happening. So when the flashlights of the two Navy patrol ships come up on the Claudia, all hell breaks out. And at one stage, a suitcase is thrown overboard. Patrick Ryan at that stage is on shore with a different group of IRA people who are waiting in lorries to ferry the ammunition into dumps in the ground across the Irish countryside. So the suitcase of cash is bobbing around in in the water off the southwest coast of Ireland. (laughs) Patrick Ryan and another man go to a fisherman. If there's one person who can locate the suitcase, it is this person, a fleet of Fishing trawlers go out to try and locate the suitcase at the same time that the Irish Navy are looking for it. It is spotted in the water by a fisherman. It's towed back into shore and the suitcase of cash ends up in the town of Cashel in County Tipperary with Patrick Ryan and another man who have been given the loan of a flat fill the bath with water, wash the money to try and get the smell of seawater out of the dollars and literally hang it up in the flat as you might do with clothes and use hair dryers to dry it out. Mm. And, you know, he makes the joke they were washing, laundering money before they even realised what they were doing. A humorous tale that, that kind of indicates how tenacious Patrick Ryan is and how focused he can be on a job at hand. Yeah. Coming back to, to in the back of my mind all the time is that you've still got Patrick Ryan, Father Patrick Ryan, he's still a priest. How does he just go a wall? And we're talking for years at a time. Don't the bishops wonder where this priest has gone? How does he just disappear and and sort of, you know, wash up in Tripoli and then all around Europe without anyone asking, where's he gone? I found that really curious too. And I spoke to a peer of his who explained that the man, as he described Father Paddy, they were all kind of like, where's Father Paddy gone? You know, it was the early 1970s. He had told his superiors that he was sending the money to the IRA. This was when he was doing that with the mission boxes. And he says they were appalled and, and he walked away. But to his peers and colleagues within the order, he was just gone. And I guess in those days as well, there's no social media. There's no mobile phones. If you make a decision to disappear, to walk away from your life, I guess in those days you could do so a little bit more easily. Hmm. He just doesn't turn up for work in the order and, and he is gone. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. We are speaking about uh, a really gripping tale of a priest involved in espionage for much of the 70s and 80s. We're talking to Jennifer O'Leary, author of the book The Padre. Jennifer, we do know other things that he was doing. Tell us about this rather inventive decision that he makes to buy a, a camping van to get around Europe and... Um, and what he does when he encounters various Irish truck drivers in truck stops. So once he had the system set up with Libya, he didn't have to be in Tripoli every second month. He would frequently go over there to keep up his contacts and learn what he could from his Libyan intelligence contacts. But he was more often based in Europe. To travel around Europe, he acquired a camper van because it was easier than staying in hotels at times. 
And he frequently would meet with Irish lorry drivers in different parts of France or Spain and cook up a, a nice hearty meal of a, of a chicken stew. But of course, Patrick Ryan was being Patrick Ryan. He was acquiring information, acquiring contacts that he could use possibly further down the line. When he later bought an apartment in a, a beach resort in Spain, wasn't he um, lifting or pilfering the passports of drunken British tourists and sending the passports to the IRA so they could later use them? Yes, he bought a little flat in Benidorm on the Costa del Sol in Spain. And again, it was quite a crafty decision to buy one in Benidorm because there was a massive influx and turnover of tourists. So he could kind of blend into the background. And it was also a place where the 18 Club 18 to 30 in the late 1970s, early 80s was beginning to become popular a lot of young British tourists were heading to Benidorm for two weeks of fun in the sun, lose their passports. And Patrick Ryan had cultivated contacts within the British embassy who he could acquire some of the surplus passports from. Mm. He was never off the job. He was always looking for an opportunity, trying to find out information that he could help to push the cause of militant Irish republicanism. And it was when he was in his camper van that he came across one of the most significant decisions, if you like, that he, that he made. Uh, which was what? He's in Geneva. He's there because he has set up his um, Swiss bank accounts and he has parked up his camper van and he is coming from the bank, he says, and he spots in a window of a Swiss clock shop, a tiny timer. Now, in those days, Andrew, they were called memo park timers. You could put them in, in your pocket, you know, set them, and it would remind you when the money of your meter of the car was about to expire. It's mid-1970s. Patrick Ryan is aware that bomb makers back in Belfast or Northern Ireland are having trouble because some of the bombs are detonating prematurely and either killing or maiming the bomb maker or the person who is placing the bomb in the dead of night. So he knows that there is this problem. He spots the timer, takes it back to the camper van, re-engineers it to make what would be described as a safety-to-arm device, figures out this could potentially work, goes back to the shop the next day, buys hundreds of memo park timers, sends them and his template for the redesign back to Ireland. And it's used in scores of bombings from the mid-1970s onward. Memo park timers become a hallmark of IRA bombs. For example, the fragments of a memo park timer were found in the 1979 Warren Point attack that killed 18 British soldiers. It was also found in the 1984 Brighton bomb attack. Yeah, the very spectacular to... one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So my point is, is that Patrick Ryan continues to buy up as many memo parks that he can do and sends them back. He is at a distance removed from IRA operations on the ground but he has very much 
a hand in many IRA bombings because of those memo park timers. Mm. And think of it this way as well, Andrew. He made it safer to train and safer to plant bombs. And because of that, long delay timers could be used. So he kind of gave the IRA, if you like, a baseline on which they could expand their bombing capacity. The British do finally close in on Patrick Ryan. What's the incident that finally tightens the noose, as it were, metaphorically? It's an incredible story. It's 1988. Patrick Ryan is based in Benidorm. He is heading towards Brussels, where he frequently is, and that the details are in the book. But British intelligence at that stage are watching him. They alert their Belgian counterparts. They say, this person's on the move. You need to keep an eye on him. But instead, the Belgian police arrest Patrick Ryan. And in custody, after a couple of days, it emerges there's a bit of a problem here. We don't have anything to charge Patrick Ryan with. Yet the British want him extradited back to London to face charges in terms of IRA bombs and attacks. This is an incredible detail. The Belgian government decides not to extradite Patrick Ryan and instead they repatriate him on a military plane back to Ireland, avoiding British airspace. The government at the time say, we made the decision to do so. There wasn't enough to charge him with the British government, and namely Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, is absolutely incensed over their decision. Yeah. Well, how audacious is he? Because, you know, after he gets back to to Ireland uh, in the late 80s, he even tries to run for the European Parliament unsuccessfully, but he still gets 30,000 votes. Uh, He does it in his clerical collar, still as Father Patrick Ryan. I guess the final sort of point that I want to ask you about is in these discussions that you had with him, does he evince any kind of maybe not even repentance, but any second thoughts about the acts of violence to which he has been a party? His fingerprints are on them, even though he never pulled a trigger, he never exploded a bomb. Did this man, who was a priest, ever think that he was violating any kind of Catholic or Christian teaching? No, and I think that is something that many people find so shocking and so disturbing that he does not have any remorse. He says that the only regret that he has is that the bombs he had a hand in were not more effective. Now, for the many thousands of relatives and victims of IRA bomb attacks, that is very upsetting to hear. That is what he believes. He is a militant Irish nationalist to his core, but he is not reflective on what he had a hand in. It's almost in a way more shocking because of the fact that he was ordained many decades earlier to administer the sacraments of the Catholic Church. He does not have any regrets. And I was speaking to him one day and I said, people will find this really difficult to get their heads around I saw a glimpse of the younger man 
He sat up in the chair a little straighter. There was a flash in his eye and he said, Jennifer, you talk about me being sorry. You talk about remorse. What about the British and what they did in terms of colonialism and imperialism? How have they ever expressed their remorse? Mm. So that is the excuse that he used, which is, you know, what many people would consider to be mealy-mouthed. Jennifer O'Leary's book is The Padre, the true story of the Irish priest who armed the IRA with Gaddafi's money. And that is the show. A big thanks to Hong Jang. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report as we begin our 2024 season. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.